Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rolo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we are continuing on our medical oncology journey of breast cancer, this time focusing on the HER2-positive patients. The last couple of weeks, we talked all about the ER-positive patients, and now we bring in that HER2-positivity as well, because the management is actually quite different. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into this episode, and we're going to give you all the details on exactly how does HER2 work, because I think that's really important when understanding the mechanism of action of things like trastuzumab and pertuzumab. And by the end of this, you're going to understand why standard of care for most patients is neoadjuvant therapy, and you'll be able to understand what these regimens actually mean and what the side effects are for these regimens. And, you know, it's just a great story. This was a, a form of breast cancer that was very aggressive and had a poor prognosis, and we turned that into a treatment strategy. So I'm excited to talk about it, too. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, let's go ahead and roll that show. All right, guys, we are back to more medical oncology for breast cancer. I will say, listeners, you can't see, but Vivek's looking pretty tan from this little trip to Hawaii that he and his wife just came back from. Yeah, Ronick, you're looking tan too. So we took a couple of weeks off there. We had some episodes recorded, but we had to take time off to go. I, I went to Hawaii. Ronick went to Singapore and Bali, which is equally as good, but amazing trip. Highly recommend Kauai absolutely love that island. The nature's beautiful. Hiking's amazing. Would 10 out of 10 recommend. I'm really kind of upset that I'm back. Ronak, how was your trip? My trip was also incredible. Just really good food, lots of good hiking, lots of cultural immersion, especially in Bali. The 30-hour trip back to the United States was a little bit rough, but you know, other than that, everything else was fine. And thankfully, we had Dan here holding down the fort and being the one making some money while we were off gallivanting. You know, I was watching a lot of basketball. I feel like that was my main contribution over the past couple of weeks. But yeah, glad you guys are back. And it sounds like you had great trips. Totally second your opinion on Kauai, by the way. Haven't been to, to Bali or Singapore. But man, that is a beautiful island, the Garden Island. It's kind of a long trip from Tennessee also. I'm a little bit spoiled. You know, having grown up in California, it was a quick trip over the Pacific. But um, yeah, super, super amazing place. You guys, I'm not going to lie. On the way back from our trip post-vacation... I was thinking a little bit about our ER positive episodes that we had released. And, you know, really, I looking back just felt like I have a better understanding and a better appreciation for why we manage that disease the way that we do. It just seems to make so much more sense. And I'm biased, but I wish I had learned it like that the first time. So I'm really anxious and excited to get on to our next topic in our early stage breast cancer treatment. That is talking about HER2 positive disease today. And so unless you guys have any other thoughts, I think Vivek, you had a case for us again this time, so you could take it away. All right. So we have a 38-year-old female who presents after a recent diagnosis of right-sided hormone receptor positive HER2 positive breast cancer. Sometimes you'll hear this called triple positive breast cancer. She was noted to have a 4.2 centimeter primary breast mass found on a diagnostic mammogram. She underwent an ultrasound-guided core biopsy. The pathology was consistent with invasive ductal mammary carcinoma. 
that was ERPR positive by IHC and HER2 positive, which IHC 3 plus. It was a grade 3 tumor with a KI67 of 30%, and there was no special type histology. On exam, she had a clinically palpable, movable 1 centimeter right axillary lymph node, so that's clinical N1 for a movable axillary lymph node, that was biopsy-proven, ERPR-positive, HER2-positive ductal carcinoma, and a clip was placed by radiology. We have plans to start neoadjuvant chemotherapy with TCHP. Before we get into that, I think it's really important, let's get a refresher on exactly what is HER2 status when we think about patients in the early stage setting. So HER2 is a transmembrane receptor. It's in the, uh, in the EGFR family, so the epidermal growth factor receptor family. And it's a, a glycoprotein. It's a, got tyrosine kinase activity, operates as a homodimer. And we do see this HER2 overexpression in other cancers besides just breast cancer. It shows up in, in GI cancers as well. We'll talk about that in future episodes when we deal with those diseases. But it's known to increase the aggressiveness of the tumor. It causes a, a sort of less favorable biology. In particular, we see sort of increased risk of recurrence, increased CNS disease. It used to be considered a very bad actor. Of course, now that we have treatments targeted towards it, that's different. But when it was first discovered, it was known as a, a bad prognostic sign. We assess for HER2 overexpression a couple of different ways. We look at immunohistochemistry, or IHC, to directly quantify the amount of expression on the outside of the tumor cells with immunohistochemical stains. And we also use FISH to directly look at sort of the overamplification of the genes. You know, you can look back at our, our breast cancer vocabulary episode to learn a little bit more about how those measures are made. But to keep it simple, we consider positive three plus or more on HC or a FISH ratio of greater than two or copy number greater than six. There's sort of a lot of intermediate categories. And we talk about that in our vocab episode. So definitely go back to that if you need a refresher. And there's also, of course, this other entity, HER2 low. That really only matters in the metastatic setting. We're not going to be thinking about that in the early setting here. Ted, I think that was a that was a great refresher. And, and listeners, definitely check out that vocabulary episode if you haven't done so already. It'll help make sure that you're able to keep up with the conversation today for sure. We alluded to this moments ago, but the discovery of HER2 has such important implications in terms of how we approach patients with HER2-positive disease, especially when there came about the drug that we now know as Herceptin or Trastuzumab. And so I think in situations like this, I think we gain a greater appreciation for how we got to where we are today with a little bit of background. And Vivek, as our resident history expert for medical things, do you want to give us a little bit of backstory behind the discovery of trastuzumab? Yeah, definitely. That's, that's my role. One of my roles here is, is definitely the historical context because I find it fascinating and it has really helped me understand a lot of the terminology and, and why we do the things the way that we do. So trastuzumab is interesting and it always confused me. Why does HER2 have new by it, NEU, and why is it also sometimes called ERBB2? I see all of these weird things, and we're going to break that down for you. So in 1984, so we're backing it up now, so in the, in the mid-80s, a gene was discovered from a rat glioblastoma cell line, and this gene was termed new, NEU, and it was found that this is an oncogenic driver that transforms cells into these cancerous tumor cells. A year later, 
there is a homologous gene to this new NEU that was identified in humans on chromosome 17. Remember in our vocabulary episode, we talked about the fish with CEP17, right? It's HER2 is located on chromosome 17, and that CEP17 is the control. So this was discovered about a year later. So now we're in the mid-80s. And the reason why this was ultimately called HER2 was because the protein product that was encoded is very similar to the EGFR receptor, which is called HER1. So then they're like, okay, let's call it HER2. You also see that it's called HER2 new sometimes. Why is that? Well, because NEU, this new gene that was discovered in the rat glioblastoma cell line, is very similar to this HER2, this gene found in humans. So that's why sometimes you'll also see HER2 new, NEU. The last thing that you'll see is ERBB2. The reason for this is that this receptor is part of the ERBB family of tyrosine kinase proteins. What this ERBB family is, is it's EGFR is one of those, and this looks similar to EGFR, so it's part of that family. EGFR is ERBB1, and that's why this is ERBB2. So hopefully that made sense, but basically it's very similar in structure to EGFR. It's part of the ERBB family, and EGFR is HER1, so they called this HER2. It's also called ERBB2, and that's where that terminology came from. Over the next decade, though, research found a murine antibody against the HER2 receptor, and they found that actually it slowed tumor growth in those cell lines. So these super smart scientists over the next several years humanized it and said, let's just give this to humans and see if it helps in patients who have HER2 overexpression, which happen to be breast cancer patients. And ultimately, this is how we started using Herceptin in humans. Got it, Vivek. I think that makes a ton of sense. And it's important that we identified that super important protein. But really, what is the function of HER2 and the HER2 receptor? I'm assuming it has some important implications in something like cell replication and proliferation, given the fact that you know targeting this, this protein has such significant implications on disease outcomes. So do you happen to know what that process is? HER2 is really interesting in that it activates in a ligand-independent manner, which is very different than typical receptors. So what ends up happening is that HER2 can either interact with other HER2 receptors to activate itself. And so if there's overexpression of HER2 and it can form dimers with other HER2 receptors, ligand-independent, that it can cause activation, which leads to cell signaling through the cell growth pathways, PI3 kinase, MAPK, all that stuff that we learned about a long time ago. The other unique thing that HER2 does is that it also forms dimers with other members of the ERBB family, the EGFR receptor, there's a HER3 receptor, a HER4 receptor, so all of those members of that tyrosine kinase protein family, and that also causes activation. What trastuzumab does, or Herceptin, and as by its brand name, is that it ends up binding to the HER2 receptor and ultimately stops signaling. It doesn't necessarily prevent the formation of heterodimerization. That's not its primary mechanism of action, but by binding, it will prevent signaling from occurring. On the other hand, we have another HER2-directed drug called pertuzumab, and what that does specifically is its mechanism is to block 
heterodimers from forming, that HER2 receptor forming dimers with other ERBB receptors. So they're functioning in two different ways. They bind in slightly different ways. And that's why we have trastuzumab and pertuzumab as two different drugs. That's really interesting. And then, so then where in this history lesson that we're currently having, does trastuzumab really come into the picture? So I think the biggest thing is that when trastuzumab was invented, so that was invented before pertuzumab, which comes later, is that we first tried it in the metastatic setting. We're going to link some of the details of the early trials in our show notes. We're not going to go too into depth there, but just for everybody to know, we had about 50% response rates. That's really good. And the idea was, well, if it works with 50% response rates in the metastatic setting, when we have clonal evolution of these cancer cells, maybe these cells are less dependent on the HER2 signal. What if we gave this earlier? What if we gave it in the adjuvant setting? So can one of you talk about what the initial important studies were for trastuzumab in early breast cancer for the adjuvant setting? So yeah, there was actually, um, early on, there was a, a joint analysis of a couple of different current cooperative group trials in the adjuvant setting, starting back in the year 2000, that showed the efficacy of the, uh, of the approach of adding receptin up front early. These trials looked at ACT versus ACT plus receptin, or ACTH, a very confusing name given that it's also the name of a hormone. And so the two trials that were included were the NSABP, or National Surgical Adjuvant Breast and Bowel Project, and their trial B31. And that, again, that was comparing this ACT with a Q3-week taxane versus ACTH. They also, they continued that receptin for a total of a year following the end of the conventional chemotherapy segment. There was also the North Central Cancer Treatment Group, trial N9031. This trial was also looking at ACT versus ACTH, and there are some details about some of the nuances of the analysis that we'll include in our show notes. But suffice to say, there was a total of around 4,000 patients combined between these two trials, and the disease-free survival at the end of it was really impressive. At three years, 87% of the patients in the trastuzumab arm versus 75% in the no trastuzumab arm. So about a 12% overall improvement in disease-free survival at the end of three years. And when we're looking at early therapy for an, an aggressive form of breast cancer, those are some pretty favorable results. Yeah, Dan, and to add on to that, I actually had seen, because I had a patient that had her two positive breast cancer, and I was looking into this a little bit, they actually had a follow-up study to that that was published in 2014. And we even, 8.4 years was the median follow-up time. So beyond the initial three years that the study was, the first study that you mentioned was including, we still saw some benefit, disease-free survival benefit of approximately 10% and overall survival of 10%. So truly this has shifted the paradigm of how we approach HER2-positive disease. You know, basically what we learned is that targeting the HER2 protein provides improved outcomes overall in early stage breast cancer patients in the adjuvant setting. But when I've treated patients, we're giving this therapy as a, as a neoadjuvant before they're getting surgery. So why is it that we prefer that approach these days? I think here the big thing is we previously discussed in the hormone receptor positive setting that we consider neoadjuvant chemotherapy in women who 
may want breast cancer conserving surgery and we want to downstage them, or in women with inoperable tumors. And that really was the mantra. If a female has an inoperable tumor, and I'm talking the early 2000s, that's when we thought about neoadjuvant chemotherapy as opposed to adjuvant chemotherapy. There was some analysis done around that time in about 2005 where we found that it didn't really matter what you, whether you gave neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy, the outcomes were very similar. So what is the advantage then of giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Well, if the survival is the same, so we're still getting the good bang for our buck, the advantage is we can downstage the axilla and we can downstage women who might need a mastectomy down to something like a lumpectomy. So that's a huge, huge thing that we can do for these women. And we talked a lot about that in our surgery episode that we had a couple of weeks ago. So in the HER2 setting, why is it different than the hormone receptor positive setting? These tumors are much more responsive to chemotherapy, and that is very, very important to know. The other thing that's important to know is that in addition to responses being higher, there's also higher complete pathologic complete response rates, which is a favorable prognostic sign. So what we've done in HER2 positive disease, we have a HER2 directed agent to improve our path CR rates. Our thought is, well, if we can flip more of these women into a pathologic CR, we'll improve overall survival. Is that currently a validated surrogate endpoint? No, but we believe that it is going to be a validated surrogate endpoint, but we don't have the full data, but that is the thought. Regardless, we're downstaging a lot of women, which to us is worth it. And number two, pathologic complete response is an important prognostic marker, not necessarily validated as a surrogate yet, but we're using it that way. And based on path CR rate after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we can actually give a different adjuvant approach to these women to improve overall survival. And we're going to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely, Vivek. And a lot of the information and the, the data to support this neoadjuvant approach came from another key trial that every Hemonc fellow needs to know, and this is the NOAA trial. This was done in, in 2010. And again, we will put all of the details in our show notes, but just kind of getting to the, the punchline of all of this. Essentially, what this study found was that the pathologic complete response was improved in both the breast and the axilla with the addition of neoadjuvant trastuzumab, which is amazing, right? Because doing exactly what Vivek said, you're able to provide downstaging, improve outcomes in terms of the surgery. And when we present the information in, in the show notes, we wouldn't recommend reading too much into the OS sensitivity analysis data here, given that all the patients should get trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting, but nonetheless, it was still a really positive outcome. That trial was one of the earliest signals that we had that, hey, we have improved pathologic CR rates in the neoadjuvant setting when we add trastuzumab to chemotherapy. The reason why overall survival, to not read into it too much, is that when the trial was initially designed, patients weren't supposed to get trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting. Then we had the trial we just talked about that, hey, trastuzumab improves outcomes in the adjuvant setting. And so... Many of these patients crossed over where it was allowed, so there was no overall survival benefit, and the authors say, well, what if we took that away? But that doesn't make any sense because patients should get trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting. So what this is really telling us is, like Ronick said, path CR rates are improved by about 20%. You know, we're looking at low 20-ish percent to about 40% path CR rates, which is significantly improved. Yeah, that's pretty good. You know, I'd say that's, uh, that's 
promising data, pretty encouraging results, but clearly that's not exactly where the story ends, right? Because if I remember from our case vignette, we're starting our patient on a combination called TCHP. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about that pertuzumab. How did that come into the picture? So we talked about this a little bit already, but recall listeners that pertuzumab is a monoclonal antibody that binds and prevents the heterodimerization of HER2 and ERBB3 receptors. And so this received FDA approval in 2013 to be used in combination with trastuzumab and docetaxel, given improvements in complete pathologic responses. And these data were presented in the phase two Neosphere study, which we'll also put in our show notes. And so the Neosphere study was a multi-centered randomized phase two trial where they essentially had these patients with HER2 positive breast cancer. They were stratified into a actually a few different treatment arms. But ultimately, what we learned from this was the following. So we had improved rates of pathologic complete response in the patients that received the addition of pertuzumab. So 45.8% received the PATH-CR when they received THP versus 29% with just TH, so without the trastuzumab. So roughly there, about a 16% improvement in PATH-CR. We also learned that patients achieved a PATH-CR and had no negativity at the time of surgery, and it was improved in the arm that received pertuzumab, 39% versus 22%. There was less PATH-CR when substituting pertuzumab for trastuzumab at 16%. And another important result was that there was a lower CR rate for ER positive, HER2 positive, compared to patients with ER negative, HER2 positive, roughly cut in half. So this, I think, highlights just the important role that the targeting of HER2 plays in HER2 positive disease. But in these cases, if ER is also functioning there, I think this also highlights some of the other complexities that we talked about last time with ER-positive disease, where it may not be as chemo-responsive, and certainly targeted agents like uh, trastuzumab and pertuzumab are not going to be effective here because there's nothing to target. And I think one of the other really key points that everybody really needs to understand is that this approval of pertuzumab is true in the United States, but it's not necessarily true in a health system like Canada. And the reason for that is that we are looking at PATH-CR rates. We are not saying that these patients are living longer. Remember that even if something like event-free survival is improved, that could mean invasive disease, meaning I just have recurrent cancer after lumpectomy in my breast, and now I have to do a mastectomy, for example, things like that. And so this addition of pertuzumab improved pathologic CR rates, but it did not necessarily improve overall survival, and we are using that as a surrogate. We don't necessarily know if that is validated as a surrogate endpoint, and that's still very much an open question in breast cancer. It is very promising, though, that when we added pertuzumab in addition to Herceptin, that we got this result. And it's also good to know that, hey, if you have ER positivity too, you're not going to have as much pathologic CRH, which helps us counsel our patients, right? Gives them that perspective that we're still shooting for that, but may not achieve as high of rates as we would if they didn't have that. That's a great point, Vivek. And just to kind of continue that conversation, Dan specifically commented that in the case vignette, we were going to treat our patient with TCHP, and that's not the regimen that I just mentioned that was looked at in the Neosphere trial. 
So the TCHP, and again, we'll put this in our show notes, came about because of the Trifena study. And so TCHP specifically includes docetaxel, carboplatin, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab. And in the Trifena study, this was a phase two trial, they were looking at cardiac toxicity associated with trastuzumab and pertuzumab. They ultimately found that it was okay. There wasn't a substantial signal for that, which was great. And from this, we were able to receive guidance about how we dose this. So typically, we do six cycles of neoadjuvant TCHP prior to taking these patients to surgery. And remember, go back to our pharmacy episode, and we talked all about some of the cardiac considerations for patients getting these agents. So be sure to check that out just to refresh your memory if you haven't done so already. I think the other really important takeaway of the Trifena study is that Like Ronick said, we were doing that. And the way the study was designed is that there were arms that included anthracycline in addition to this. So really what they did was there was European regimens that often include 5-FU, epirubicin, and cyclophosphamide, which is called FEC. In America, you often see us talking about ACT. And so you might wonder, okay, well, where did carboplatin come from? What are we doing here? This seems all just made up and you're, you guys are just throwing out new drugs. And really what, what the, the key thought here is this. We knew from the ABC trials that we've discussed a couple of episodes ago that you didn't necessarily need an anthracycline in all cases. Those studies, when we were looking at, do I need anthracycline or not? Could I do that TC, docetaxel, cyclophosphamide? Didn't necessarily stratify by HER2 status, and we weren't giving all of those patients something like trastuzumab. So the thought was, if I'm already giving this patient a HER2-directed therapy, do I need to expose somebody to an alkylator like cyclophosphamide? And do I need to expose them to something like anthracycline? When we knew that by having an anthracycline and trastuzumab, the risk of CHF goes up by about four times. 4% of patients in some of these earlier studies that actually incorporated anthracycline with trastuzumab ended up getting heart failure. And so that was really the key thing here is to determine that. And then when they looked at TCHP versus these toxic chemo regimens, FEC, using the anthracycline, using the cyclophosphamide, using all of these things, they found that the disease-free survival was actually numerically the best in TCHP at 90% at three years. And that is why TCHP is a common regimen used because of that really good disease-free survival rate in many of these patients. And you know, I think a logical question to come up next is how long are we continuing patients on this biologic therapy? In this case, I'm talking about trastuzumab. When we're dealing with drugs that don't have the same cumulative toxic profile as some of our conventional chemotherapy agents, it's natural to wonder, you know, is continuing this for longer going to be better for our patients? So in the HERA trial, or H-E-R-A, HERA trial, we looked at extending that treatment with trastuzumab for one and two years compared to observation. So compared to observation alone, Adding that additional 12 months or completing a a full 12 months of trastuzumab, it improved disease-free survival and overall survival for patients, again, compared with observation alone. But we saw there wasn't any significant increase in improved outcomes with an additional year beyond that. So two years doesn't seem to add that much, but one year of therapy with trastuzumab following, you know, neoadjuvant therapy and surgery does seem to provide some benefit. So that tends to be what patients 
get as a standard of care. As long as they're tolerating therapy well, we continue that trastuzumab for a full year. Yeah. And another really important thing along with that, Dan, when we said, well, one year versus two years of therapy, extended therapy, what about a shorter duration of this HER2-directed therapy? What if we did six months of therapy or only nine weeks of therapy compared to a year? Because in the early trials, everybody got a year of therapy. That's just what we did. And the idea was, well, can we peel that back? There were four different trials that looked at this. And there were non-inferiority trials. There were some mixed results. Some of them did actually seem that six months is non-inferior. Maybe nine weeks is non-inferior. But a meta-analysis of these four trials showed that the hazard ratio for disease-free survival is 1.2, which did not meet the threshold for non-inferiority. So basically, a year of trastuzumab is the way to go. Six months, nine weeks is not non-inferior based on the meta-analysis. And we will show you all four of those trials and the meta-analysis in our show notes. So, you know, we talked a lot about the neoadjuvant approach here. And, you know, with our patient, we're going with TCHP. And we talked a little bit about extending that therapy with trastuzumab alone beyond the neoadjuvant setting, you know, completing that full year of trastuzumab treatment. But what about other drugs in the adjuvant setting? Is there still a role for that ever? So one of the really important adjuvant trials that really determines whether we're going to give something like a TCH versus a TCHP. And so I know Dan's question was, in the adjuvant setting, do we need to continue pertuzumab if we did TCHP, for example? And the answer is, for everybody to know, if you did just Herceptin in the neoadjuvant setting, in the adjuvant setting, do just Herceptin. If you did HP, Herceptin, and Pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting, then in the adjuvant setting, you need to also do HP. What this affinity trial did, though, was it really told us which patients we need to do H and which patients we need to do HP in addition to TC, with, remember, the C being carboplatin, not cyclophosphamide in this setting. The affinity trial randomized patients with HER2-positive disease to either adjuvant chemotherapy plus trastuzumab or adjuvant chemotherapy plus trastuzumab and pertuzumab. The key takeaway of this trial was that when we looked at all patients, we found that there was a very similar invasive disease-free survival at six years. It was only different by like one percentage point. And when we're thinking about that, we're saying, is it really worth adding pertuzumab for an entire year for these patients. But then in a subgroup analysis, we said, well, what if we looked at node positive patients versus node negative patients? The six-year difference in disease-free survival was 4.5% in the node positive group and was only 0.1% in the node negative group, which shows that our benefit is with pertuzumab is derived in the node positive group. So the key takeaway is for patients with node-positive disease, add pertuzumab. For patients with node-negative disease, just trastuzumab alone is sufficient. And that is based on this affinity data. The TCHP that we talked about previously was a phase two trial saying like, hey, what's the safety compared to anthracyclines? They didn't look at just TCH in that trial versus TCHP. That's how we extrapolate. We do TCH, for patients who have node-negative disease and add the pertuzumab, TCHP, for those who have node-positive disease, whatever you did in the neoadjuvant setting, you continue in the adjuvant setting. Because in the affinity trial, they got HP for one year. So, you know, earlier on when we were talking about how we were looking for pathologic complete response when we were adding these biologic therapies, 
what happens if you don't achieve pathologic complete response? You know, are we safe to just continue somebody on biologic therapy alone? Or is there a role for additional cytotoxic chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting in that case? That's a great question, Dan. And this was another important study that everyone needs to know that this is the Catherine study. And so what we know, right, at, up until this point, what we've learned from our discussion today is that patients with high-risk breast cancer, especially those that are HER2 positive or triple negative, have a high rate of recurrence and metastasis if there is residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy. So essentially, what do we do to try to mitigate some of those effects? And so that's where the Catherine trial came to the picture. This was another really big trial. This is introducing a new drug, and we talked about this also in our pharmacology episode. But this specifically looked at the antibody drug conjugate known as trastuzumab amtansine, or TDM1. And recall, listeners, that this is using a monoclonal antibody that links the cytotoxic microtubule inhibitor called amtansine to trastuzumab. Therefore, you're allowing for a targeted delivery of a very potent drug. And so the Catherine study sought to understand if there was utility in adjuvant TDM1 in patients with residual disease following neoadjuvant HER2-directed therapy and to see if this would improve outcomes compared to adjuvant trastuzumab alone. And so this was a, a large phase three trial that included patients that had residual disease in the breast or the axillary lymph nodes after completion of taxane-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy along with trastuzumab. And so what the study found was that there were improvements in the invasive disease-free survival at the three-year mark, which was 88% versus 77%, 88 being for when TDM1 was used. And also, there was an improvement in freedom from distant recurrence as well. The overall survival was not statistically significant, but again, the invasive disease-free survival and the freedom from distant recurrence was positive, and so suggesting that there may be utility in the addition of this drug, and that it improved outcomes in terms of invasive disease for survival and freedom from distant recurrence. The important caveats to the Catherine trial is that less than 20% of those patients actually received pertuzumab. So we just talked about in Affinity that adding pertuzumab to node-positive disease is important. And we talked about how doing TCHP is important in node-positive disease. In this study, less than 20% of people got pertuzumab. So that's one little caveat. We still do this as standard of care. If a patient has residual disease at the time of surgery after neoadjuvant HER2-directed therapy, we give them TDM1. But that is an important caveat just to consider. And the second thing is the discontinuation rates were high roughly in the range of about 20%, I think it was about 18% of patients had to discontinue early. There was high rates of neuropathy, as well as some patients who developed pulmonary toxicity. And those are just two really important factors to consider. There were also more cytopenias associated with TDM1. So it's a microtubule agent, remember, like vincristine, all those things, it causes neuropathy. And that's an important side effect to keep in mind for these patients. So it does have better invasive disease-free survival. Those are a few caveats to that trial. And you know, one thing that I think is interesting that came out in some of the data here looking at TDM1 is there was some concern that there might be higher rates of, of CNS relapse. And the reason that this concern came about is because there seemed to be an increased incidence 
of the CNS as being the first site where disease recurred in patients treated with TDM1. But when we looked at the data overall, the incidence of CNS recurrence was actually similar between patients who received TDM1 and patients who received trastuzumab alone. What I think this is really showing us is that TDM1 does a great job of controlling disease outside of the CNS. It suppresses disease in a more profound way than trastuzumab alone does, but both trastuzumab and TDM1 seem to just have a little bit more trouble getting into the CNS. And these, this makes sense. These drugs are gigantic. You know, it, it, an antibody alone is huge, and then you add on a large, bulky microtubule agent onto it, it's going to have probably have trouble penetrating the CNS. So uh, suffice to say, TDM1 does not seem to cause higher rates of relapse in the CNS, but it does control disease so well everywhere else that patients who are treated with TDM1 if they were going to recur, it seemed to be happening in the CNS more frequently as the first site. So guys, the one thing that I wanted to point out, and, and we didn't we didn't explicitly state this, but as you start going through the eligibility criteria for inclusion in a lot of these major trials, in general, they did not include patients with stage one disease, so very small breast cancer lesions. So one can surmise that perhaps you know, we don't have to go through all the great lengths that we've been going through for patients that have more extensive disease. Perhaps there's a different way to take care of patients with smaller disease burdens like stage one breast cancer. So was there ever anything that looked into this and, and where are we at in terms of landscape of treatment of this type of disease? So for these smaller HER2 positive tumors, we do have good data in the setting. We have a phase two trial that we're going to link to our show notes this episode was full of trials. We don't want you to worry about all the trial names. We're about to do a summary of all this, but it was called the APT trial. And what they did here is they said, what if we just gave Taxol and Herceptin for 12 doses weekly, followed by completing a year of Herceptin alone? And so that's very similar, right? We're doing a year of trastuzumab, HER2-directed therapy. But instead of doing like a taxotere carboplatin Herceptin, let's de-escalate down, down to Taxol Herceptin only. And in this phase two trial, the disease-free survival, the overall survival, all those things looked really good. So this was a great option for patients who have early stage disease. For very, very small tumors, I'm talking less than five millimeters, you could also consider just not doing any HER2-directed therapy for extremely small tumors. But the big thing that we haven't mentioned in general, all of the things we talked about in our ER-positive discussion applies here too. You are still going to give the hormone-directed therapy to these patients for all of the reasons we talked about in the last episode. It still applies to those patients who are ER-positive and HER2-positive. That's great. And so, guys, I, I think we're slowly reaching the end of our episode. And, and as Vivek pointed out, there were a lot of trials in this. And I think taking a step back and just giving a quick summary of everything we discussed today is going to be super beneficial for everybody. So the way that we should think about approaching HER2-directed therapy in the early stage setting is first, remember the early stage breast cancer less than two centimeters, $2 bill, less than the $2 bill. We can do Taxol, Herceptin, followed by a year of Herceptin. Done. Okay? And we can do that in the adjuvant setting. Don't need to do neoadjuvant therapy. For any tumor with a node, and for any tumor that's greater than 2 centimeters, we will do neoadjuvant chemotherapy with Herceptin. 
And we do that in the form of TCH, which is docetaxel, carboplatin, and Herceptin. And we add pertuzumab for those with node-positive disease. The reason why we don't do an anthracycline is the risk of cardiotoxicity. We will link all of the reasons for this in our show notes, where we tried to combine even doxorubicin and trastuzumab, and we didn't need to do that, which is how we landed on this TCH or add the pertuzumab if you have node-positive disease. And the last thing is for an afterwards, if you get a pathologic CR, you continue whatever you started with for a year. If you started with trastuzumab alone, you do trastuzumab for one year. If you did trastuzumab plus pertuzumab, then you finish with trastuzumab plus pertuzumab for a year in the adjuvant setting. If you do not get a pathologic CR, we give that antibody drug conjugate called TDM1, and that's based on the Catherine study. Look at our show notes. We will have all of the details for you, but that is the big summary, and that's what you need to take away. I love that high-level summary. That was awesome. I wish I had had that in my back pocket when I was going into boards. Absolutely. Guys, this was another really great episode. Listeners, check out our show notes. We'll have all the information there. But I think this wraps up our discussion about HER2-positive early breast cancer. I think that's it for today. So until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Peace.